When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. Oh. (laughs) We just touched fingers. We're in the same room. And hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Means a lot. As uh, our wonderful introduction lady just said, here is Dismembering Horror, episode 183 of Dismembering Horror. And today we are dismembering the Brandon Cronenberg joint Possessor. Yep. Possess her. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she possesses. Coming off the the back of, well, not exactly, but two films ago. A yeah. Cronenberg, uh, a, a, a daddy Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah. No, we had um, our friend Alex on for Crimes of the Future, Cronenberg Sr.'s latest film. And Alex reminded us, oh, yeah, Possessor, da-da-da. And Tim and I are like, oh, yeah, well, we were going to do that for this show. So we were like, let's finally watch it and talk about it. So here we are. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, to get into it further, we like to uh, set the stage here with a trailer. So let's watch it, and we'll be right back with you. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> From 2020, written, directed by Brandon Cronenberg, Possessor. You have a very special nature. One we've worked hard together to unlock. Pull me out. The results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No. No, I'm fine. Oh, how was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? today what do you mean all right tim i would love to know per our rating system would you tell your past self who had not seen this film to (laughs) avoid stream rent or just go ahead and buy it i would rent this movie there's just a couple things that didn't quite land right for me um, that kept it out of the buy uh, realm. But it's, it, I enjoyed it. It's cool. It's visually like quite cool. Like I, I was really into the style of it. Um, I think that there are some story elements that just don't quite happen or they, they don't get to where I, I 
would like them to, I guess, maybe. But other than that, everybody's really good in it. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's almost a buy, but not quite. Cool. I'll, I'll second that as far as the rent rating for myself. I was actually thinking maybe it was just the kind of mood I've been in of late. But when I was watching it, I was feeling more like this is great. So I would totally stream it for whatever reason. Like maybe just my standards just happen to be there right now. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll just kind of have to figure it out as we go here why maybe that wasn't higher. But sort of um, actually why I say rent it is I did end up renting it just because I was at the video store. Which uh, video store? Videotech in the Pasadena. Vi- the Videotech? In South Pasadena. Mm. Uh, saw it was 4K. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I have some rentals in my account left. I'll check it out. And I'm glad I did because I realized um, it's there's different versions. That's the, This is the uncut one right, that I that's, rented. That's what I watched as well, the uncut Okay, one. so it is that way on Hulu yep. too? Yep. Cool, great. So, okay, so then maybe I wouldn't have to rent it to get the uncut version. <laughs> that's kind of where I was going with it. But... um. Yeah, there was, yeah, there there was enough going on in it that, um, yeah, pushed it to a rent, which I'll I'll get into. But before that, what the heck are we even talking about? Just to help you, and we hope mm. you've seen the film. But if not, you're welcome all the same. Just help us all get on the same page here. And this is full spoilers, if uh, you like and use that term. Yeah. Tim, what was this film? What happened in Possessor? Okay. This film is a, well, it's a sci-fi thriller with, you know, some horror undertones, I would say. I would would put it more in the thriller genre for sure. Um, But the basic premise is there is a organization of some sort clandestine organization that has the technology to insert one human's consciousness into another human's consciousness. And they do this in a sort of espionage way where they have targets that they want to have carry out some sort of crime or murder or whatever for their own gain or, or, Maybe they have clients as well. Do they have clients? Did it seem like they're working for somebody or they're they're like just this in the shadows organization? I, I guess know. either way, they would have clients of some kind. Right. So like it benefits somebody. Yeah. Some secret whatever. I saw it more as like it was all sorts of uh, corporate espionage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's what it feels like. So it's like job per job basis kind of thing. So they get hired, I guess to carry out these acts, whatever they may be. In this case, uh, we have our main, uh, I don't know what we should call them, jumpers or... or, or Possessors? Oh, yeah, possessors. Let's call them possessors. (laughs) That's a good idea. So you've got your main possessor who is um, named... What is her name? Tasia Voss. Oh, yeah, Tasia. And... She's given a job. She, well, we we meet her before we meet her when she's already inside of uh, a woman who carries out a very gruesome stabbing of some fat, uh, rich guy, presumably. And it's quite over the top. Uh, what do they call that? Overkill. She stabs him unnecessarily many, many times. 
And then when she tries to kill herself with a gun, she can't pull the trigger and the cops kill her instead. So we find out that Tasia, the possessor, was inside of that woman's body carrying out that murder and that she's having some trouble. Uh, the, the lines of her consciousness are, are like right on the edge of being blurred when she's going in and out of the people that she's possessing. When she comes out, she has to go through kind of like a Blade Runner-esque set of questions and you know start, has to reset so that we know that she's good that she's out um and we meet her family and stuff like that not really super important but the main story is that she gets a job she has to go into this guy and this is very like it's it's spy it's spy thrillery stuff it's like get into him integrate in his like with the people in his life and then carry out a couple murders so that the head of a corporation when he dies somebody else inherits it and then people who have hired the possessor crew benefit you know it's it's probably more specific than that but that's the gist and because of her issues where that she's not really being upfront about uh, with her boss, she starts to lose touch while she's on the inside. And stuff starts to kind of fall apart and she's not really holding it together. And that cascades into a series of sort of domino effect mishaps and ultimately the control over the body she's possessing um, swaps to the to the actual guy's consciousness who she's possessing and she ends up kind of trapped inside of that and she has to figure out a way to get out and she does sort of sort of uh and i'll say a big kind of um conflict point through it is can she use by her powers of acting basically uh uh, fool all those around uh, Colin Tate is who she's possessing is right. his name uh, can yeah she fool everyone around him the girlfriend the dad so that's fun yeah the co-worker yeah yeah but it's pretty I mean it's a pretty simple premise when it comes down to it there there's complications that are a little uh complicated <laughs> yeah well that's the, yeah that's what's great not to get ahead of ourselves but that's what's great you take a simple setup it allows you to extrapolate to all sorts of yeah. not so simple things i mean i love an espionage spy thriller it's always like a pretty simple premise right like go go get the thing from the safe and and get out of there and i love body swapping things oh yeah didn't his didn't david cronenberg do a body swap movie i mean the fly you can well no 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 what is the the one with the twins isn't that that's dead ringers is that is that cronenberg oh yeah it's not it's not body swapping it's just two brothers yeah 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 yeah. all right well anyway (laughs) there you go (laughs) all right cool great job and oh yeah this is uh not so much a summary but it's just fun to keep track of meant to mention this up front this is our third andrea riseborough film for dismembering horror so can you name the other two? I can. One of them is the one of the greatest movies of all time, Mandy. 
and the other is one of the worst movies of all time, <laughs> the new 2020 grudge. Yep. Our first film we ever saw of the new decade, Tim. <laughs> what a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> and this came out the same year, so it was good to see, see uh, her in this too, finally. Yeah. All right, great. We rated it. We summarized it. Here we go for What Worked. What Worked. I mean, I just mentioned Andrea Riseborough, so mm-hmm. just to get the acting out of the way, Tim, I thought was incredible on both of the leads' yeah. part, but it was just so funny. It really is the kind of performances, I guess this happens in the body swap stories where I just had the funniest thought and um, it just really, uh, it just confirmed or, or that that it's what made me realize how good their performances are. But when I was watching him after she possesses him, mm-hmm. I thought, um, wow, she's doing a really good job of acting inside his body. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Wow. And then I, and then, Amazing. Then I thought, wait, of course I caught myself. No, that's his performance. He's acting like he's no, no. inside. No, no, Ryan. Him. That this they actually have this technology now. Okay. And that's what they were doing. That's part of the film. <laughs> yeah. They had to train me. for months to get that right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's more. What, much more to say on it. They're great. Well, we've seen him as well in Piercing, and he was really good in that. And we liked that movie a lot. And his uh, the actor's name is um, Chris Abbott? No, that's my friend. No, it is that. Christopher. Christopher Abbott. Oh, weird. Yeah. I have a friend named Chris Abbott. <laughs> I think you Not said that. Not this guy. During... I probably did say it. Yeah. But... <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, he's... I don't know if he's considered underrated, but I guess just from the sense that he... He seems to be in more of these smaller indie films than in anything like, you know, super commercial. Makes me think that he's he's yet to be kind of discovered, but he's, I mean, he's not yet to be discovered, but like he's yet to blow up in a mass way. Yeah. But he's so freaking talented. It's crazy. Like you could see him in five years being in a Marvel movie yeah. kind of thing. They I always mean, definitely. discover the talent. Yeah. How would you describe both of their uh, kind of types or essences that they that they bring to their roles? Hmm. Well, he and I mean, I've seen him in maybe three or four things, certainly three, because he was in It Comes at Night as well. And um, he, he so far plays a very similar character in the three things I've seen, which is borderline unhinged like so his whole character seems in all three movies to be somebody who's on the verge of snapping but he's holding it together and that's kind of what i think makes him endearing like his essence is that you feel for him because you know he's really really trying to not fall apart and he's able to ride that line i think that's hard for a lot of actors um, it's super challenging to be like right on the cusp of of meltdown without going there. But when he does go there, he's very, very like compelling. Like when he's losing his shit, I, I buy it. So 
what is that? What's the answer to your question? His essence is uh, <laughs> man on the verge. Mm. But something about him is kind of sullen too. Yeah, that's true. He's got this kind of dark, almost sadness to him. I don't know. Yeah. I like it though. I mean, I like his essence. And then for Andrea, our bud, how about her? She's she's I don't. I, she's she's see, a little different. I don't know she, what to think of her. She feels more like the super intellectual kind. That doesn't necessarily mean like. Not to say she isn't smart, but I don't mean intellectual in the term smart. I guess I mean like she's uh, just has a sort of like intensity through the eyes, like Certainly. a real presence through the eyes. She definitely plays characters that seem to. They seem I mean, they're they're They all seem wounded or or like they're carrying around a lot. But in both The Grudge and this, they also seem like the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Which is an interesting kind of dichotomy that it's, I actually like that a lot because it, it makes sense. It's like why, I think it's why we maybe not relate to her, but we like feel for her is that we go, oh man, if she didn't, if she wasn't burdened she'd be like crushing it in the world. But because of this burden, she can't quite like actualize as a person, which is a good kind of character trait to have in, in a film because the whole, well, not the whole point, but often the point of your lead character, you want to, you want to be on the ride to see of whether or not they can actualize. And when they don't, especially because of their quote unquote burden, it's tragic. So she feels really tragic in all of the movies I've seen her in. Yeah. Well, for this movie, it's weird because she, I mean, it gets into the story a bit, her character story. It doesn't seem like at any point there's any sort of journey or sense of hope for her. It's yeah. just, just so just, it's like she's been, her life's been captured and she's just being beat down. And it's as if she's aware of it on some level for sure but doesn't really it, it's as if there's literally no hope so why even bother yeah there isn't yeah she's got a nihilistic kind of feel to this character for sure because in we never really feel or i never really felt that she was you know this there's a there's a very common construct in these types of movies of one more job and then i'm out <laughs> And that that doesn't really exist in this. She's resigned to the fact that like she's gone too far, and and it, it, that's kind of it for her. And she's just like, you know what? Just keep like let's just keep going. Yeah, and that's really depressing. Well, it is. It I I kept um thinking of I guess both in mood story and a lot of visuals of THX eleven thirty eight. Sure. In this film, and or yeah, compared to this film. And um, with that one, you know, it's about someone coming to realize their situation and wanting to escape versus like we're just saying this reality, it's as if there's no even awareness or idea that one could escape at all. And the difference that is interesting with those stories, it's like they're being all kept just to do the mindless um, like other people do in this film, just the kind of 
drudge work or whatever, mm-hmm. being you know kept on the drugs and all that. But she has a unique job in this film, which is to kill people. So what I thought was really interesting, just idea-wise, story-wise, thematically in this, was that that kind of comparison to... I'm going to be sensitive to people in the military here, but I just think of um, military-industrial complex in the sense of maybe... I mean, it's it's something that's highlighted in a lot of movies, but is definitely real too, of trying to put someone in the mode of it's okay to kill, like trying to numb mm. someone to, you know, it's like what you see them go through. Yeah. We assume is real life of, of like full metal jacket or, or right. whatever, just beating someone so much that they just are that empathy, whatever it is that should yeah. make them able to prevent them from killing another person. That's beat out of them. So that's I think where maybe that hopelessness comes from is because that's the place she's been put in Mm -hmm. is there's of course there's no hope because she lives in a world that's just so far separated because she's been forced into a world where she has to kill without any sort of uh, regret yeah that's interesting I I mean I also kind of maybe this is there's a thread of connection to what you're saying that she She's a product of exactly what you're talking about, but the result is that she is losing touch with her own sense of self, right? Because she's every time she goes into another body, she has to kind of integrate and be that person. And if she stays in too long, she loses herself. She loses her ability to come out and retain who she is and so there's something really interesting to me about that concept of like what that would do to you and i wonder if there isn't some sort of overt metaphor whether it be something like what you're describing or if maybe there's something in the the concept of like addiction or or something else. Nothing nothing stuck out overtly to me like it was pointing at a thing like trying to like say this is the message of the film or right. anything like that. But I wonder what it could be. I mean, I just now maybe I wasn't so much aware of it but watching it while watching it, but just the um that that we get used the word a lot, the corporatism exploiting yeah. that the kind that, you know, exploits human well-being and actually, yeah. Because cause look at the ending of the film right. where she's not, when, when she doesn't remember the butterfly or whatever or killing the butterfly at the end anymore or doesn't care about it or maybe she's lying and has just accepted this is her fate. Mm-hmm. Either way, the reaction of uh, her supervisor or whatever, co-worker Jennifer Jason Lee Girder is, oh, good, you no longer care or remember about your, your mm. regretful butterfly memories but she's saying it in a way that's not like oh good you're better now you've recovered from any sort of dangerous memory of sympathy yeah it's very just you know uh checking by the book you know uh employee has satisfied this check which is we see elsewhere in the film when uh he plugs in with the glasses Mm -hmm, um -hmm. and what what is he's like taking details of the drapes or something like that yeah i couldn't quite (laughs) maybe it's it's purposefully obtuse but like what it what is his job to observe different like like this oh maybe what it is is because he's in the sort of virtual reality realm 
And he's watching real people act out real life scenarios in their homes through their webcams. But his job is to detail, like, specifically in this case on that day, the curtains. Okay, well, I didn't... And and so what does that, like, that monotonous, like, what's the point of that job, right? Like, it's to some corporate bullshit, like, checklist thing that you're talking about, right? It's like, it's so irrelevant, but it's like a cog in the wheel. No, right. That that and that's what I was getting to with the example. I didn't mean yeah. that, what he he was doing there, but remember how the supervisor comes on his 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 earcom thing and goes, "Keep it up. You're moving at a snail's pace." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like it's very metropolis to me, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you got to just keep the the gears going. Uh it does make me think that maybe a big part of the undertone of this movie is that corporatism and the disconnect when you sort of sign your life over to that construct, you, and maybe the commentary is that we are as a, as a society, the risk is that you really do lose touch with some, some fundamental things like family and connection and uh, intimacy because a lot of this movie has like these sort of corollaries between sex and violence, which is something we we sort of saw in in Cronenberg's, you know, uh, his dad's film, The Crimes of the Future. But specifically in that she ends up completely destroying her own family that that she had already left, right? Like she left her family, her husband and her kid for this job. Mm-hmm. And she, in the beginning, is sort of confused as to the timeline of that and and kind of slips up in her interview saying, you know, I've been meaning to, like, talk with my my husband. And and Jennifer Jason Lee is like, well, you, you, you're separate. You guys have been separated. And she's like, no, oh, right. Yeah, no, I know that. But we we still want to talk, right? So you can, it's like one of the first clues that she she's not quite on the level. And to see that end up with her, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty twisted, with her, f- her failings cause the possessed body guy to kill her husband while she's in his body still. Right. And Jennifer Jason Lee possesses her son. And the result is she kills her own son. Right. But you should say failings there in air quotes because her her failings are being affected by the trauma of having killed all these people. Yes. Yes. Well, right. Mm. I mean, that's what's keeping her, that's what's kind of making her lose control and flash out is she's getting flashes of these murders she's committed and whatever, whatever. Yeah. She's, I mean, it's interesting how, you know, they show everything we're talking about here with, um, her inability, like the way you exit the body is to shoot yourself in the head. Right. And something is possessing her that makes her it so she like she can't do it. She just can't pull the trigger. So I don't know. I think that's an interesting way to show on some level she's uh she hasn't totally stamped out her humanity of, 
you know, handing herself over for the job. It's unnatural to right. do that. <laughs> yeah, to herself. Yeah. But the irony being she's able to do it to her family. So the, yeah, this, whatever you want to call it, the company, the influence of the company or corporatism or whatever you want to call it, has made it almost okay for her to be able to destroy her family, but still not be able to, like, I guess her character arc is that she needs to be able to destroy herself and she can't bring herself to do that. Yeah. And that's pretty dark and twisted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I like it. It's cool. Um, to stay on the story, but shift gears a little bit, just a, a way to put like what this story is as a what if, you know, and that's a sort of a, what you use for a setup for a horror premise is what if when like you have a technology that's messing with your body and your consciousness and how those are exist with one another. Uh, what happens when that goes wrong? And I right. just thought that was so, so cool. And probably my favorite part about this film was like, okay, so we've established you have this future technology of putting someone's consciousness in someone else's body, these weird, funny machines and all that. But to... What's so fun and what movies do is how do you visualize that right. going wrong? And that's just, that's the, the best stuff in this movie yeah. for me. You visualize it by having it so when he's fighting back, he takes her face off. That's the, I mean, that is by far the moment of the film for me. <laughs> I mean, it's the poster image. Right, like yeah. when he's holding her face and then it collapses in, like they've, it's a beautiful cut i guess it's not even i mean it is technically a cut but it's so perfectly executed yeah and shocking and like like upsetting and disturbing <laughs> all like it's so so good uh yeah it, but even then just you know the classic film language the quick cuts to show what someone's internal experience mm -hmm. is and you have the imagery of like this is what i i, I wasn't sure if it's in the original cut or not or this is only the unrated cop, but like the flash where she has the erect penis over mm -hmm, him. Mm -hmm. Like that stuff was so good. And um, that the quick flash imagery, yeah, it was colors and different, you know, shots of them or whatever. It had a great quality to it that felt like sort of if you're looking at something under a microscope almost yeah. where it had these sort of uh, organic imperfections in the lenses or something that might just be like a little, is that like a mitochondria there? I don't know. It, <laughs> sure. These cool little organic touches that was a really good fusing of the technology we're talking about and looking at in the film, as well as this is all an organic thing that's mixing with that. So very good, uh, good living up to your namesake, Mr. Cronenberg. Yeah, the the color palette of any time you're inside the mind, those flashes or whatever it may be, is so much more vibrant than the rest of the film. Like most of the coloring in the film is a fairly flat, almost gray tone to it. And though every time you flash in, it's extremely bright, crisp, sharp yellows and blues and reds. And like it's... It, primary colors it's like really really well distinguishable between the reality of the film and the inside the brain parts yeah yeah uh, uh just i mean because we already mentioned it because christopher abbott and piercing 
which we covered, it all visually did remind me of that too. Yeah. The the cityscapes with all yeah. the windows looking in, that red yellow slickness. Mm-hmm. It was cool. Um, other things, you know, in the story, just talking about what could you only do in this story? Promise of the premise, pursuing potent possibilities, as we like to call it here. Her rehearsing going into his body by spying on him. Yeah. So good. And then to have the payoff too of, okay, it's the suspense of when she's first uh, possessed in on him. It's the next morning and can she fool um, the girlfriend? Right. Yeah, that's all great stuff. It's all very, I mean, that that to me is the bread and butter of any sort of spy thriller, right? Like the the setup of I've got to learn how to integrate first like mm-hmm. do my research like figure out who these people are like what makes them tick but then they're t- obviously this is taking it that one step further of i'm not just like play acting to def- to uh you know convince i'm i'm inside the body mm-hmm. which is just, it's a cool premise like a, a poly juice potion or the <laughs> yeah the early mission impossible movies right right yeah yeah this it is interesting this is it is playing off some pretty funny Mission Impossible tropes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Even with the, him putting her face mask on inside his brain. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you know, it does sort of harken back to that. Yeah. Um, and just to mention it, too, because it was so great, definitely what worked within all that part of those sequences. I called it like the lights out scene. Remind me of that short film that was turned into a feature. Mm-hmm. Um just that, yeah, when the, the light clicks off and what, what did they call it? It's, it's something I forgot, oh God, I forgot. but, um, I don't remember. Yeah. It's not, not the gateway. I don't know. Something. It's the grudge. <laughs> it's not a grudge, <laughs> but it's whatever they call it when they like flick the switch that's flicking like the two, their two realities together. Mm-hmm. And it's when they're, and yeah, that's when we shift the totally red vision is when we're flashing, uh, uh, flashing to her. Um, and then to have her walk in on his shot. Oh, is this, oh, that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. This like almost, I don't know what you would call it. It's, it, it's kind of we used this um damn what is it called uh it's a lens a type of lens trick where your lens you put a you put like a a thing on the lens and it creates this really interesting fall off where like only a particular spot in the frame is in focus and everything else falls away from that out of focus um can't remember the term for it but the, in those dreamy sort of in the brain sequences, they use that kind of thing mm-hmm. or something to that effect. And you get really beautiful uh, lens flaring going on. And like, it's just such a, I just think it's such a uniquely pretty f- photography to look at, you know, like, and I think that's really important when you're doing a film that needs to distinguish essentially realms right like this is the inside the brain realm and it has to feel different than the outside real world yeah what what did it do for you Uh, yeah did it work for you and what did it do for you how they uh fell on that kind of shooting style a lot where you have someone like rather than being here in the frame if it's this kind of shot they'd kind of be on the opposite as what you typically frame 
like, like short siding them. Is that what's called? Yeah. I I that has become so much more common that I almost don't even notice it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like a, a few years ago, I think I would have been like, whoa, that feels weird or that seems off or whatever. It's it I I mean, even in like TV shows, I'm seeing it a ton. I noticed it a lot in the show Sex Education. Okay. Which I was like, and it and it did stick out to me, which was a few years ago, where I was like, whoa, they're they're short siding almost every scene. And the, the way I can describe that, because I kind of did it with my hands for Tim here, but it's <laughs> like when the, the direction of that they're looking with their eye line, there's less camera space there. Right. That's it's the more short side. Scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So typically, if you were on the, let's say, the left of frame, like the left third of frame, the actor would be looking through that space on the you know middle to right th- third of the frame. So what does it do for you? I think actually, I think it's being used for this really specific purpose because what it does is it makes us feel like there's more of an intensity, like the person's face is looking off screen, but there's nothing, there's no space in between where they're looking. And so I think I think just psychologically, it gives us this feeling of discomfort and intensity. And I, I, for a movie like this, that to make that choice makes total sense, right? It feels slightly disorienting without like breaking any sort of like rules of where people are in space. It doesn't make our, it doesn't confuse us, but it makes us feel off, which is, I think, a, you know, you don't want to get too crazy and then suddenly like we can't even catch up with where people are. I never felt that in this, which is kind of a testament to how effective it's working because I was never confused. So those techniques are obviously working, but I think it just adds this weird sense of discomfort and, and tension. Yeah. It did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like anybody who says like you shouldn't do that, stop. Like stop saying stuff like that. Who said that? Just I mean, I think people go, well, you know, like that that's that's not how you're supposed to shoot a scene because like you don't want to short side everybody in every shot. And it's like, but I do. I always love the imaginary naysayers in yeah. your head, Tim. <laughs> they exist. Oh, <laughs> uh, what else worked for you here about this film? You know, in particular, I it's it's a jealousy thing. In a good way. It's an envy thing, not a jealousy thing. I, the knife going into the neck of the dude in the first scene and the sort of revisiting of that visual and how it's shot and how visceral it is, is exactly what I wanted in the short film that I'm finishing right now. with that. And I was like, ah, oh, they did it so good. Like, it's so, so much, it's, it's so exactly what I was trying to accomplish and didn't ever quite get mm-hmm. and had to kind of work around and figure out a solution visually to, to sell that. But watching them do it and revisit it a bunch of times was like, every time I saw it, I was like, God, no, that's how you do it, man, damn. And then to have, in a story sense, her son do the same to her at the end, the payoff of that was exceptional to me. Like, I love connectivity in story, like, especially 
especially visual connectivity, right? Like where mm. you get these kind of recalls or, or is recall the right word? These sort of callbacks, I guess, or repeated refrains, you know, like that come through and then finally you get a payoff that like makes it all make sense. There's just something about that style that is really pleasing to me. Mm. Um, I even, I was really, <laughs> I was keyed into the idea early on that somebody else was going to show up and be a, a, a possessed person. But I, I was constantly being like, oh, it's going to be this guy. Oh, it's going to be that guy. Like I thought Eddie, for example, when this character, Eddie, who's like a coworker, shows up at sort of a intense moment and helps her inside the body, helps her out. Um, and I immediately was like, oh, somebody's inside of Eddie. This is a, you know, this is all plant and whatever. And it turns out that's not exactly right. Eddie was a plant, but he's not possessed. He's just working for the corporation or whatever. And so I think actually what it did, which is super, super smart, is it got me and hopefully other people watching it thinking about that possibility. But then when it, he be, when we know that he's not possessed, but we know that the, the company has people everywhere, we're going, oh, okay, so maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's coming. And having it be her son is like the best option imaginable. And I, you know, not one that I would have guessed. I know. It was such a trip getting that visual of violence both happening to and being committed by a child, but layered on to oh no, this isn't a child right. at the same time. It's really just well. Yeah. It, it also, I think this theme of like influence and how we like humans seem to think that they have permission to influence either other people or other beings or whatever, right? Like that they can kind of just do whatever they want. They, they point at it a couple of times, obviously with the butterfly being like, oh, I killed this and I mounted it myself. Like, no, nobody else does that, right? Like no other being does that. Humans do that where they say, oh, I, I can kill this thing for no real reason other than to say that I did it and then display it and be proud of that display. That's really twisted. <laughs> it's weird, right? Right? Like if you kind of step back and go, wait, why are we like, why do we do that? Why yeah. do we why do we feel compelled to do that at all? I mean, it's an ego thing, I guess, or like wanting to feel like what we're like we can we can I mean it's really arrogant. Well, it's a sadistic urge that I think like exists in humans yeah. in us all, but it's just one that uh, you know, like so many things, sadistic urges, <laughs> you could just call them that, that because they're societal wide, they have been uh, accepted as, yeah. okay, yeah, this is just normal. Yeah, yeah, pose with the the deer or the lion or the rhino you killed. Right. Yeah. Well, and it actually, yeah, the, the animal thing too, like there's a, that clip that they're showing of um, electronic stim being inserted into a bowl and they are seeing if they can get, this is like old archival footage that they're showing mm. and they're seeing if they can get the bowl 
to not charge at the matador. Mm. And they do, right? Like they arrest its movement by, you know, sending this electromagnetic shock into the bull's body, into its brain, presumably, which is obviously, you know, a, a connection to what we're seeing in this film, right? They're putting a, a some sort of diode or whatever into the brain of the, the possessed person. And again, like it's this concept of like, Humans have this tendency to come up with an idea and then without really maybe thinking too much of whether or not they should, they just do it because they think they can. Right, because it becomes, it's been normalized. Yeah, right, and it's, a, it's, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's just a methodology for control. Like, I can do this, so I'm going to, is really the same as just saying, I want control over my, you know, desires or just reality right yeah it's it's a it's a yeah because it's weird it's not like about control like i need to control everything it's that like you know why people will say uh <laughs> like people like to get tattoos or whatever you know it's which is cool i like tattoos but yeah just that kind of well it's taking control. It's, it's a perversion of agency mm-hmm mm-hmm Right. Like we all should have agency and be able to do things that we deem desirable, I guess. But at what cost? Right. Like if you pervert that to a certain extent, you you eliminate the consideration for everything else and everyone else. Like uh, sewing over your ears and eyes and sewing ears all over your body. Yeah. yeah. Or your mouth and eyes, I meant to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's a I mean. That's a really fun visual to to pick apart, too. This is from Crimes of the Future. In so many ways, metaphorically, right? Like to say I'm 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 sure they weren't thinking this, but I'm all I'm all ears and no <laughs> no sight or 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 speech, right? Yeah. Is a pretty poignant thing to say that I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for what, right? Like for this, and this is I think a good question for all art. Like do you need to have a reason? Like, what's your intention? And sometimes the answer is no. Like, it's not for the artist. Yeah. How do we get here? I don't know. <laughs> okay, because I had I had two cups of coffee like right before we started, and I'm I'm just super excited to talk <laughs> philosophically. <laughs> well, great. Me too, as always. But um, to reel it back a bit, just when you were talking about um some of the violence oh, in this. Yeah, that's my the big extreme stabbing. I I mean, it was relentless, like the stabbing, but then also the killing of Sean Bean. And again, I don't know if this was just well, in the uncut He doesn't die, oh, right, which is sorry. even crazier. Like right. we, we were <laughs> watching it and then he shows up later and he's like bandaged up and we're like, Wait, what? How is he not dead? Do you think he, he got has his, his eyeball his contract out. now? Like he, he can't die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he can no longer be the most killed actor on yeah. the planet. Be brought to the verge of death. But <laughs> but actually that that's actually an example of kind of what I wanted to bring up about the violence and how I think it's super justified for the story and themes where it's like when, yeah, he's not getting killed, but when he's getting maimed of like the teeth being oh like shoved out and then his eye getting like gouged out and you get that quick, quick shot of it. But then even better, the idea that he survives that all for me, it just 
that on like all the stabbing that happens at the end when the like half of his hand gets chopped off with the butcher knife. (laughs) There's something just visually about reminding us like the how we can how we can come apart in pieces, basically, that um, it's like, you know, what his dad, David's obsessed with, you know, every every all his philosophy and outlook on life is everything is the body, like all Mm -hmm. realities kind of has to do with the body. But it, it's like that. It just reminds me of in a, a body gore human consciousness sense that um, that story of or that question of, you know, if you have that original wooden ship and s- replace, you know, and in, 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 upkeep- in upkeeping it, you replace all its wood and parts over the years is it still that original ship (laughs) that's interesting that's what's going on for me like here with except for humans and human bodies and consciousness where it's just sort of like it, it just made me feel that idea okay like if someone's getting chopped up like in pieces and pieces and pieces let's say somehow being kept alive down to like their brain and like at what point are they no longer them or does the consciousness like Mm. like leave it, yeah could you could you rebuild the, it's like what comes up in the um, ideals of teleportation in the fly too like right, yeah it's a right. duplicate but is the consciousness the same i don't know so it was really neat for me how v- the idea of like visceral showing violence kind of really played well into the idea that we're bodies and, and what does it mean to have a consciousness in a body yeah are we we're just we're just meat sacks right in in the physical aspect of it but what does that mean and like how come we have these other things going on that like you know thoughts and stuff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like what's that all about (laughs) right freaky and i like that this is this kind of movie this kind of story of consciousness and transferring consciousness it's like never not fun yeah it's been around forever, right? Like even Frankenstein. Is, no, before is this, that, right? Like, how about Vampire? That's right. From the twenties, yeah. his 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 uh his whatever his astral body gets up and walks out <laughs> like around in that <laughs> yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, there's just something so intriguing about exploring that idea and 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 all of the possibilities around that idea. Yeah, because then that gets into zombies or like you know and Reanimator. All sure, that, you know. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? And I think the movie, uh, now that's saying it explicitly, I like how it gets into the point uh, that it's surely not to kill each other. Yeah, I think that that's a good takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I did. You know, there's a there's one other aspect to the to the Sean Bean thing. I wonder if there isn't a little bit of um symbolism i guess in in him not dying that like because he's playing the role of this corporate magnate you know super rich guy that they that the company wants to take down because they want whatever he has right they want to take over control of his company and they have to kill him to get that and to have him be subject to this gruesome beating and mutilation and still not die seems pretty like on the nose in a good way of like you you can't kill that thing 
like in our society right now, mm. that thing is going to survive no matter how hard you poke it with the fire poker. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's just never ending. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a goddamn cockroach. The money keeping them alive. Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, that. Great. Well, I would also just love to know so much, Tim, about what did not work for you about this film. So let's do that. Okay. Here we go. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> it's strange, but... I think what it boils down to is, and maybe this would change in a second viewing, but Tasia, I never felt like we achieved a sense of stakes for her as an individual. And like, the movie's not really set up to have, well, it kind of isn't, it kind of isn't. And that may be what the problem I have is. It's, it's, there's, there seem to be kind of two directions that I think you could go. And this movie feels like it's, it's riding between them. So one direction is, I have a family. I need to get out of this so I can re- reclaim my like personhood and the things that mean something to me. That is vaguely there. But I never felt like she needed that. But yeah, because you kind of seem to agree when I was saying like it made sense for her character and story that she's so far gone from even being able to consider that. Right. So then why have the family there at all? I guess it's it is because that arc is still there in the sense of they are her last tie to anything. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, her, yeah. I, I guess so. I, I just think that eh, it's tough. I think it's tough to do both really well or effectively. And I think that it never quite landed quite right in that even her relationship with her son, I, I never felt like there was anything that we were given to care about how she felt about her son. Yeah, I she mean, seems really disconnected from the son in particular. And like, so I guess what that did is that it undercut the ending to me. Mm. It felt like it was like, I was like, yeah, okay, she's, I don't know. I need, I, I think you could have, if, if she, if we had seen her actually actively re, um, recoil from intimacy with her son, if she's so far gone that we we go, oh man, she can't even relate and like be close to her own son. So push it further. Yes. Or show it more. Show it more. More like one scene that really hammers that home. Then the ending would feel like it landed more for me. Because, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's good how it is where for a horror movie like this, where it just just gives this this pervasive dread through mm-hmm. everything like you think of hereditary where mm-hmm. it's not like their love is present from the beginning of the movie and then goes sour it's just 
dour and sad the but family the, relations from the get-go. True, but you you understand the stakes and the importance of how they feel underneath. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it's really kind of clearly down. right. Like you know that um, the mom Tony Collette it cares immensely for the well-being of her daughter before anything bad happens. You, you we get that in a couple ways. Like she really adamantly is like. You know, you you have to look after her. And just in saying that, like, I don't know how you like what a good way to do that in this film would be necessarily off the top of my head, but either overt, more overt disregard for the son in the scene when she comes home and has dinner there, like uh, some sort of rejection of motherhood toward him, something like that, I think would have hammered it home. Now, on the job side of so that's like the home life side of it, right? On the job side of it, the stakes of what's going to happen if they don't finish the job don't really exist for me. Because who am, who are we seeing those stakes through? Jennifer Jason Lee, mm-hmm. right? Not really. Well, again, but there's no. I don't know. It would kind of undercut the idea that there's is no good there is no like just way to do what they're doing it's just all this horrible no, situation but it, to what's be in. the consequence if it fails that's i guess what i'm saying well it's it's so dour that her death doesn't even feel like a consequence because like her death could be but right but then why then the, why have the story for me you, it's you know what i'm saying though like yeah i if think we can't get on board with her like I get that like a big part of the storyline is her losing touch with herself. But if there's no sort of out, if we if, if we don't see a a light at the end of the tunnel, a good or bad, like a choice, something like that, the the external powers that be don't really matter. Like I don't care if they get the job done because right. there's no extra like benefit to her. I I hear, yeah, I get what you're saying. I think for me, that was like, it's, it's, it's not even like hoping that she, yeah, she's not even at the level of hoping she escapes. It's just hoping that she like at least sees that there's maybe, I don't know. It's like, there's some kind of little hope there for me when watching it that I did latch onto, but it's just like so buried and so layered. Like you see it. I think I think the thing that did what you're saying wasn't there for me was uh, the it was like the fact that she is keeping a connection with her family, like even though they're separated and when she's sleeping with her husband or ex-husband or whatever, it was really cool. You see the two extremes of totally disengaged and then like back in it, back in the moment with him. Mm-hmm. So that just showed me like on some level She's still doing the human thing, wanting to connect, still, you know, maybe even if it feels like so far from it, there's some semblance of possibility of love still there kind of thing. So I don't know, just in a very just maybe being optimistic about humans, it was able to give me that sense of stakes. That's just always there. But everything that's how it's doing it now it's just about like making it feel hopeless and <laughs> like in a horror movie sense that did yeah. work for me that I wouldn't want to change. So it's a fine line. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I think maybe I'm, I'm maybe kind of repeating myself in a way, but maybe a clearer way to say what I'm feeling is when you have your external goals, which is carry out the job, keep the status quo, like do what the corporate overlords or whatever are telling me to do. That's her external goal. Her internal goal seems to be uh, escape her. It's not really escape her family, is it? Is that right? It is in a way. It's like cut the ties to her family. It's a thing that she cannot quite do, similar to cutting the ties or carrying out the act of her job. She can't bring herself to do it. So those two things match up, right? And so the story evolves and, and eventually you would want those two things to come back around and collide. And they do in this story. So to me, I guess what's, what feels weird is that when they collide, the, the story, the writers, I mean, Brandon Cronenberg has written it so that those two, you know, external and internal things come back around and collide. And yet I'm still not feeling connected to either the catharsis or the tragedy of that moment. And so that that's kind of where I'm falling off and not going, oh, it, it really perfectly lands. And maybe I'm just being ri- like, that might be too much to ask. I don't know if it is. Maybe not. Yeah, it's weird for, I guess, to get. Because kind of- well, here's, here's the thing. The story says, essentially, it's never really stated. But the way it ends up is that if you're if she's unable to finish the job, that dude that she's possessing can seek retribution on her and her family. That's the consequences of her not being able to do it. And I, because she didn't, because she seems so despondent with her family. When that threat arrives, that he's there and he's going to potentially kill her husband and son, I didn't care because she didn't seem to care. Mm. That's the problem. And so when Jennifer Jason Lee shows up in her son's body and she shoots the son, it's almost saying a, a totally different thing. So maybe that thing that I'm wanting is super antithetical to what Brandon Cronenberg wants. Yeah, it's weird. And that's cause, fine. Because when I'm watching that, I wasn't feeling like I wanted to feel for them. I was just feeling like this is just all horrible and gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, well, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe this is maybe this is where you're coming from, like, um, or where you're coming from is affecting how kind of I was viewing it um, with a, what my what did not work is. And I hate I hate going here. Um it's, I don't know. It, it's, it, like, like I'm thinking <laughs> maybe it's putting it on, um, maybe it's because of like something how it's written, like you're saying, but I think it's something more going on where it's like, it doesn't feel like just in the moment when you're watching it, there's as much kind of ephemeral magical depth there at any given point. As let's say when I turn on Daddy Cronenberg's movie, like Videodrome, whatever it may be, and just from the get go, you're just like, this is a world I'm mm-hmm. in, you know, and you just, just everything seems so fully realized in there. And 
My theorizing is that that is just something that comes with when you, the more movies you make. It's just then that filter between the essence you're channeling down into the movie becomes, um, I guess, less and less filtering. <laughs> um, so I don't know. There's, that's my initial, this is my, my initial guess as to what may be happening um, sometimes with, uh, I don't know. Yeah. With movies these days, as I, much as I may love the story and everything. Right. I agree. And I'm not sure what to exactly point at. But when we just watched the trailer, the soundscape and the music in the trailer felt more world building than the soundscape and music in the actual movie. Hmm. And I don't know. I'm like, I'd have to go and like actually dig in and, and say, okay, what is happening? What's different between these two things? Because the trailer jumped out and I was like, that's what I was expecting to see. Right. So yeah, there's, there's it on the technical level of, okay, the designing of the sounds, whatever. But I guess I'm talking more about like, when you look at uh, like, let's say you just look at a famous Annie Leibovitz photo or something, mm -hmm. and there's just something about it that just makes you go, whoa. Yeah. But then it feels like you can have someone else capture nearly the exact same image and it's just not quite there. I don't know. Right. It's just this weird, ephemeral, like film magic thing that I'm kind of obsessed with thinking about. Yeah, for some reason, too, I kept thinking, well, not kept thinking, but there were moments where I thought to myself, oh, this is kind of close to what, it's unsuccessfully close to what Under the Skin was successful at. And that may just be, who knows, I don't know. Yeah, so like that. Why? Right. I don't know exactly how to like, articulate what that thing is like something about just when it's a shot of her getting a ride in a car i just feel like shivers through my whole body right. why right exactly <laughs> but it's and i think that's just you know it's well it is a technical thing i think to get when you get that um when you're trying to translate whatever that thing is i'm talking about um every it's about making every single technical aspect work towards that right but i think maybe the magic side of it um, is the how much sort of just like belief do you have in like the story world as the filmmaker or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's like the thing that that kind of comes through. But yeah, for whatever reason, that's a good example. For whatever reason, under the skin, I just like feel, feel everything way, way more. This one I didn't as much. Could have anything to do with just the mood I was in, the TV I'm watching it on, whatever. Yeah. So that's maybe my disclaimer for this all, but there you go. Yeah. I, I this is not a great thing to to have it so what did not work. But I was really almost confused and put off by her husband. And I don't know what it is exactly about. It felt something felt off. I don't know if it's the acting. I don't know if they had to ADR <laughs> him or something. But every time he spoke, I was like jarred and i don't know why i mean i don't even want to like i'm not trying to badmouth the actor i'm really not but <laughs> something about how that performance was captured in this particular film did not work i i was like what's happening weird i don't get it 
Because no, nobody else made me feel that way in the movie. Yeah. And I thought, is this guy not an actor or is like something like did something just fell off? Yeah. I don't know why. But that's I mean, honestly, that's it. It, it. There's nothing about the movie really that I was like, I don't like this. Yeah. There's just that one sort of component of feeling like this weird story thing didn't land right. Mm hmm. That's it. And that actor. (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right, then. Then I think we can move on to our wrap-up section here. Things of note. Things of note! (laughs) This should be interesting. Got some questions for you here, Tim, that this movie inspired. Hmm. To, to, to just go full dark like we like to here, Tim. It's what horror movies allow us to do. So there's that repeated idea and visual of when she and other bodies is uh, trying to kill herself by shooting herself in the head via putting the gun in her mouth. Mm-hmm. Would that be the default way you think you would try to kill yourself with a gun? No way. I, I always think you'd do it right through the head, right? Yeah. Why through the mouth? Why is that a thing? I don't know, but people do it. Is there something just more dramatic about it? Maybe. Maybe there's something about seeing the gun as you pull the trigger. The the certainty of it's in the hole. But even then, it can like feel like you can miss or something. Well, I mean... When many people have survived, many people, people have survived the the gun to the temple. Okay. It, it, I like, I've, you know, true crime stuff you hear about, like, like, like people literally having a gun held to their temple and getting it, getting shot and it ricocheting weird and not like killing them or even killing, like not even damaging them to such an extent that they're like a vegetable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a connoisseur necessarily of uh, suicide. So so it's it, maybe it's just more places to kind of bleed out if you do it through your mouth. I agree, though. Don't, doesn't it seem like if you put it through your mouth that it would just go out the back of your <laughs> yeah, neck and yeah. you'd, you'd just be like hurt? Yeah, what I guess I thought, but you're saying <laughs> it works if you just do that through your brain. Um, yeah. To the forehead? Like right in front. Why? Why aren't people doing that? God, it's probably happened in reality. I'm where sure. It if has. that happens, where someone survives it, imagine like someone, whichever way comes first, they shoot themselves in the mouth or the head first. It doesn't do it, so then they have to shoot themselves a second time. Do you think that's happened? Where it's like yes. self-inflicted head wound, uh, two shots. Yes, I'm. Sh- I'm certain, without oh knowing anything God. factual, that that has happened. I feel like I got to put that in a horror movie. Oh, man. It's brutal. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, too, that it's so unbelievable that if you did put it in a movie, people would be like, this isn't a realistic depiction. Well, it happens at the end of the Ty West movie, the house, whatever, whatever, with someone surviving the initial gunshot to the head. So I think. Of yeah. That. Um, anyways, other question I had for you, the it's cool when you have a movie where it really feels like there's two equal leads mm-hmm, in a way mm-hmm. the end credits came on and, and likely it's say you want to give them equal credit 
where you had Andrea Riseborough's name was bottom left. Yep. And then Christopher Abbott's name was top right. So you think in left to right order, Andrea's name is first. Uh, top bottom, Christopher's name is first. Right. So it's supposed to be like, okay, that's they're like on equal planes. When you see that, does your brain view that at, that way that they're equal? Or does Christopher look higher or Andrea look first? Chris, it, I, my reaction was that Christopher was getting a, a higher billing. Okay. Even though that wouldn't necessarily make sense. You, I you know. agree the intention would be equal, right? Yes, but I didn't feel like my snap reaction was, oh, he got higher billing. So then is there a way to visually show actors with equal billing and a credits card? Sure. How? Uh, put them on the same plane. Uh, maybe, oh, you know, what would be cool is if you had in this particular case as a design you had both names center frame on top of each other, and then they split apart. One goes one way, one goes the other. So you initially see that. That would be a little distracting. I guess it worked for this movie. Yeah, for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's tough. And also, it's it's a contractual issue. Yeah. So who knows? I'm just trying to think. I thought that was an interesting question of this was their aim at... At least to my brain, doesn't quite do that. Same with he yours. got more screen time for sure. True. So it may. I guess if you're going off of that, you notice they did do in order alphabetical uh, alphabetical in order of appear. No, sorry, they did in order of appearance. Yeah. for the scroll. So they are actively trying to avoid <laughs> saying you know one person gets higher or lower billing. Yeah, They're just saying screw it. Just here you go. This anyway. is how you saw them. Just fun exercise if you can do that or not. I'm prone to like I've done two films really that had two main sort of leads. And I'm very prone to having the woman's name be on the left and the man's name be on the right, but having them be on the same plane. I don't know. That's just and part of that is story related because both of those films are the lead truly is actually the woman in both of those the only thing i can think of is if you have them like spiraling with each or like circling (laughs) they're like outlying a circle together just turning around that's the only (laughs) way i could think of i mean yeah that also would probably be very distracting yeah (laughs) (laughs) it has to be fast enough it's like there's not one that comes in first right of Okay, great. Um, so some things about this movie. Um, that those interesting that uh, apparently while developing the movie in pre-production, Brandon Cronenberg found himself gathering inspiration from the films of Dario Argento, particularly mm. a film that we loved and dismembered, Opera. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, and this is me just reading from an IMDb trivia thing, but thought this was really fun since I liked this moment a lot. Brandon Cronenberg said he originally wrote the scene in which Voss has sex with the intention of showing Voss as having a penis, but he subsequently edited the script, knowing some actors would not feel comfortable with it. Upon casting Andrea Riseborough, the two had a conversation during which Riseborough suggested the idea of Voss having male genitalia, which delighted Cronenberg and made (laughs) him feel like she was reading his mind. The scene was rewritten back to its original form, and what is seen on on film is what Cronenberg initially envisioned. Cool. 
Yeah, that's always nice. I because uh, we just saw Crimes of the Future, and I I just happened to notice this uh, the title card or whatever you call it for Neon. Uh, also was on this. So I'm like, who, like, what is Neon? Is Neon a production company? Is it a distribution company? It happens to be in reality both. But I think it's, it's interesting that, and noteworthy, I guess, just that we, you start to see these companies popping up in the realm, this like new independent horror realm. A24 obviously is sort of a well-known one. Now I'm seeing Neon a lot. I'm sure there's a couple others that I like Spectre Vision. Yes, yeah, Spectre Vision, of course. You know, so I am and like 10 years ago, I feel like that did not exist. Like I don't I don't feel like there were these sort of smaller, maybe not smaller, but these companies that kind of had we're building a a branded name recognition in the, and and like a consistency in the type of right. films that they were releasing or distributing. The only one that I remember seeing a lot back in the day was like Castle uh, Castle Rock. Castle Rock is that what it is? I yeah. know what you're talking about the the ones that did like what, Thirteen Ghosts exactly. And all that. Yeah, and Blumhouse, right? Those which came after that, yeah. Right. Those are the two that stick out. And the style of movie that those companies were making was very, very different, even though it's still in the horror realm. Right. So if that's true, I'd agree that at least observing, you know, to the best of my memory, that does feel that way. If Who that knows is, if that's true. <laughs> right. But <laughs> if that is, I mean, because you always had the full moon features, you know. They, sure, there they, was they also existed. like Ghost House or something that like that, That was the one right? that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Um. Or yeah, was that the Sam Raimi one? I don't, rem- I don't remember. Anyways, I wonder if, you know, again, if that is true, I guess that could be a response to just studio movies aren't making them as often right. as much anymore. Maybe that's what like, I'm getting at. When you look at films that, like like Vampire's Kiss we just did, it was crazy to think, oh, this is, you know, like had, you know, a studio behind it, whatever, whatever, but it had the budget of like a mega indie. Like yeah. these equivalent movies were still being done by studios or whatnot. So, well, and I, th- I think this just speaks to horror is something that does always have its place and niche. So if the studio stopped feeling comfortable doing it, someone else was going to take up that marketplace. And maybe what we're seeing is the studio, like that the filmmakers and the, the, that these companies are elevating the filmmakers in their actual vision more and they are becoming the go-to companies for that because i don't know if this is true this is total speculation but maybe that's in in response to studios wanting to have too much sort of say in in how the film is made or what's acceptable for their studio to like take on i mean i think of that only in so far as like all of these times, these anecdotes we've heard about newer filmmakers being given a really big property, like a like a superhero film or or something like that, and being under Warner Brothers or Disney or whatever, like these giant companies, and the movie just not being good, and you go, well, what happened? And the reports, like sort of on like the underground reports, are always that the studio just was meddling and would not let the filmmaker make the movie that they were hired to make. And so 
this is all conjecture. Like, I don't know what's really going on. But I hope and wonder, or I wonder and hope, that maybe this is part of what's happening, that these smaller distribution, independent distribution companies are getting wise to allowing filmmakers and elevating what they actually want to do. And then you get these really cool avant-garde or just crazy films that like they're they're the ones I want to be watching. Like I don't like I'll go see the Marvel movies, but like I don't see them because I think they're gonna be good. <laughs> Though you do love them. I love them. That I love them for a, a particular reason, and it's not the filmmaking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a totally different thing. And so, and that's not to take anything away from the filmmaking of those movies. It's just, that's not why I'm going. Right? I, I want to see Possessor specifically for the filmmaking. Yeah. I want to see Hereditary for the filmmaking. Right? Like, that's incredibly exciting. Yeah. And um, I realized, I don't know if I'm quite catching myself from earlier, but the like, studios, it's interesting. They do have their subsidiary companies, yeah, like yeah. the Screen Gems, the Legendary Pictures that, you know, releases right. the Godzilla films and all that. Where I wonder, I don't know, again, just conjecture, but if they're almost like the in-between, yeah, probably. you know, kind of feel of how much is allowed or not, so to speak. It's And I think it all awesome comes down to a lot of the time who has been given the reins for those subsidiaries, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, to take a, a really big example, Marvel Studios way back when they were in kind of deep shit and didn't own a lot of their uh, IP anymore because they had just given them out to other companies to save themselves from bankruptcy. Hire a guy like Kevin Feige and they just say, you know what? we're going to just let you do the thing that you think you want to do. We're going to kind of just see if it works. I mean, I look towards um, the Godzilla movies, which Mm -hmm. I I do love. Um, There's, uh, yeah, they got Gareth Edwards, who did the indie movie Monsters, to do the first one. And then Mike uh, Doherty of Krampus and Trick or Treat fame has done like the last couple. So, yeah. There's that. Yeah, I do think that, (laughs) I mean, I'm biased. I'm super biased. When I think about the bureaucratic kind of non-filmmaker in charge structure that exists in a lot of realms, and it exists on a small scale as well as a big scale, right? Um, the, the powers that be so often not being filmmakers and how that can and often does get in the way of either a good film being made or a uh, a film being made well <laughs> it's really frustrating well that ties it back to the movie the movie we referenced at the beginning the grudge yeah where it's like after seeing the dude's other movies you are like there's no way this wasn't just all studio interference right. that ruined this which was screen gems which i think Interesting. might have that um reputation record yeah well yeah. anyway listen to that review folks <laughs> Uh, I've right. never seen Ryan stare at the ceiling in a, in a movie theater more. <laughs> I was upset. <laughs> Not since Battle LA. Um, oh, God. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, wrap it up with Possessor here. 
finish off with some recommendations for us all. Tim, I want to recommend Dead, a film, a documentary on HBO Max called uh, 15 Minutes of Shame. It's kind of like produced and featuring uh, Monica Lewinsky. Oh. But it's all about how like that internet bullying culture is done in a really like careful, interesting way. And it just had this story in it that just is the kind of like anecdote I just love so, so much, which was the story of this this guy is not a white guy who uh, was driving by the protests for um, is during the Black Lives Matter movement or when all the protests were happening. And like someone snapped a photo of him on his way to work when he's driving by a protest where he was fidgeting with his hands, he says. And at the moment he went like that with his fingers, it like it was like him making what I guess uh, like a lot of white supremacists mm-hmm. kind of sign make. Yeah. And that picture of him doing that went viral and basically like ruined his life in the worst kind of ways, fired from his job, like when he needed it the most ever in his life kind of thing. It was just one of those like insane, like what is the world anymore stories that I just kind of find like cathartic in a way, just to have light shed on them, just to show like, I don't know, nuance does reign supreme (laughs) and like (laughs) letting people tell their story. Um, Great stuff like that in there and just fun stories that were kind of like that of people who weren't doing anything wrong but yet there's some just little like kind of careful just how it all played out they just became these victims of these like crazy crazy internet uh i don't know what do you call it uh bullying whatever yeah but uh yeah 15 minutes of shame it was super interesting it's good to hear from monica check it out cool i will recommend dead a book i'm rereading which i think is just sort of one of the I don't know. It's like an essential sort of reading for any filmmaker. Uh, it's called Making Movies. It's Sidney Lumet's, um, I don't know what you would call it, just memoir. It's not really a memoir. I, I don't know what it is. It's just his musings. Yeah, his musings on filmmaking. <laughs> um, but it's great. I really love there's like, I think it's in the foreword. He's talking about how, or maybe it's in the first page or whatever of the book, but he's, he says, you know, he asked Akira Kurosawa, um, how he came up with the framing of this particular shot in, I don't know, Ron or something like that. And Kurosawa was like, well, if I move the camera an inch to the left, I'd see like an airport. And if I moved it to the, an inch to the right, I'd see like a, a power plant. That's it. And I just, I love that kind of, I don't know, anecdote or insight of just like, sometimes you just, you get what you get because... You're there doing it. Yeah. And I said this to a kid the other day who is at the, he's at the like UCLA, um, whatever it's called, adjunct something, something. Extension. Yeah, that. And he's, you know, he's probably 21 or whatever. And he was like, do you have any like advice or whatever? I was like, yeah, just make stuff. Like now you can do that. You can get your friends together and you can just go make things. And it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't even have to be good, but you will benefit so much more from doing things right now. If you have an idea, you go shoot it that weekend. Then what I did, which was kind of 
hem and haw and like try to rewrite and write and make it perfect and whatever. And then I have, you know, a handful of scripts that have been sitting around for 10 years. That sucks. Don't do that. (laughs) Just got to set a date. Yeah. Like make the thing and then remake it if you don't like how it came out and then remake that and rewrite that or whatever. Use what what you felt was working for that project and put it into a different one. I mean, we know that great filmmakers have been doing that forever, right? Like go watch any of Sam Raimi's movies. They all have pieces of other of his other movies in them. Yeah. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Just go make stuff. Um, but the book, yeah, it's a good book. Great. These are not my recommendations, but just segues so perfectly from that. Uh, I can recommend, <laughs> not recommend <Okay>. it. <laughs> uh, I just finished rereading, actually, Akira Kurosawa's book, something like an autobiography. Cool. It's great, inspiring, a lot of fun. And I'll also recommend, um, if you're just looking for good filmmaking inspiration, we dismembered uh, One Cut of the Dead yeah. here. Yeah. Which is great, great, great. And uh, there's an episode of that um, of Joe Bob Briggs's show on Shutter that that where they cover one cut of the dead, and he just gives a great sort of inspirational spiel on uh, independent filmmaking and to go out and do it. So, just in the spirit of what you're suggesting and talking about here, I'll I'll mention those two things. Cool, great. All right, well that's it for today, folks. So in closing, remember killing people's bad. Thanks for listening. Yeah, don't kill anybody, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>